Hey folks, welcome to the France 44 cast. I'm your host, Marge Buckley. For our first episode, it was hard for us to avoid talking about COVID-19, the thing that's shaping all of our lives right now. So I sat down in the France 44 classroom with Sam Weisberg, a wine specialist at France 44, as well as my good friend and collaborator, and we talked about the coronavirus, the great French wine blight, and how learning about the disruptions of the past can help us grow through the reckonings of our present. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited that we're doing this. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Sam, could you give us a little overview of what that is, what that means? What's phylloxera? Absolutely. Um, So phylloxera is a a very small little bug, um, sort of a louse, uh, that feeds on the sap of grapevines, on the roots. It's a pest, just like a locust or, or, or any other kind of agricultural pest that you might find that eats crops and damages things. So phylloxera, essentially, it still exists in the world, uh, but in the uh, mid to late 1800s, uh, it basically hitched a ride from the United States over to France. Uh, it was an invasive species from the U.S., uh, and uh, the French grapevines did not have any um, resistance to it. So mm-hmm. it just completely wiped out almost 40% of the vineyards in France uh, over about a 20 to 30 year period. Um, and that was known as the Great French Wine Blight. And so you and I kind of came to phylloxera, knowing about phylloxera, learning about phylloxera, um, because we did a play together about it. We did sort of an experimental lecture slash performance. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what we learned yeah, definitely. I mean, it was like a weird experimental theater piece that we did in a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, we knew we were going to be working on a play or something together, and um, I had been working at France 44 for about a year at this point, and um, uh, this was just like a really interesting little bit of history that I kept seeing. And it's a great story. Like, part of what I think that we were going to talk about today, just with like our conversation here, is like it was this cataclysmic moment in the industry when everyone thought you know, everything's going to fall apart. It really did, like, make a lot of things fall apart for a long time, and it feels very similar uh, to read about it now uh, to sort of what, you know, COVID is doing in the industry at the moment. I also cannot remember where we first came to the idea. I mean, I know you came to me being like, hey, I (laughs) learned about this aphid. Aphid, yeah, that's right. It's an aphid. Yeah, you said louse. I was like, it's a sort of, it's not, well, it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think you make a really good point about, like, the thing that is feeling really prescient about phylloxera right now is that it's, like, a disease that majorly disrupted the wine industry. Mm-hmm. And we're going through a moment where a disease is majorly disrupting the wine industry again. And, you know, this time it's also disrupting many other industries. Right. But things are starting to change in the world of wine. Yeah, absolutely. Can I you mean- talk about how you've seen that at the store? So, I mean, at the store, we did um, just a, like, crazy month, basically, um, as the first kind of wave of stay-at-home orders came into place. We probably did, like, a holiday season's worth of business in about two weeks. Um, It was just kind of a madhouse, and people were just kind of panic buying. There was a real sense of, like, not knowing what was happening, and I think that... um, like we definitely took the brunt of it in that first month of like just really intense shopping panic from people. Um, I love the like panic buying alcohol. Like <laughs> we got to get it. <laughs> <laughs> Which like makes sense. Like, totally. I mean, it's an important thing. And like, I, I've read some really great articles now, one out there by David Wondrich, uh, who's a great 
cocktail writer who even talked about um, like the historical use of alcohol in pandemics of like it calms people down, like it gives you something like happy hour is like an expected thing that you can rely on day to day. And it's like, um, you know, within reason and making sure that you're using it in a responsible way. Like I completely understand that. I mean, it's amazing. This is probably the first um, major pandemic in human history where we haven't actually had doctors saying drinking will cure you um, because that's pretty much what they offered in 1918 and even before and like during the black death like you would be prescribed like some cognac or something you know people really did like think that alcohol would cure you which we know now is not true but maybe it cures your mind a little bit yeah i mean it's not true in a medical sense but like I mean, I feel like I know a lot of people who are trying to just find ways to get by and get through right now. Definitely. And alcohol is one of those ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember like my moment of panic buying when coronavirus first hit. And I remember I was like in Cub Foods and there was like an endless line of people stretching all the way to the back. And I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was feeling fine until I like walked into the Cub Foods and I saw it like, just massive lines of people waiting at the registers and I bought like $150 worth of food or something mm-hmm. that I was like 100% not planning on buying. We saw more of that at the beginning of this mm-hmm. um, and, and it's calmed down a lot now. People are kind of figuring out, I think, how to live with it to some degree, although, you know, that's weird phrasing that we've been tossing around a lot of, you know, living with it versus whatever. But okay. um, then there's also these like interesting kind of concentric circles of repercussions that go outside of it. Um, the way that the restaurant industry has really shut down has um, moved a lot of product back into our corner of the world as mm. retailers, which is really interesting. We have access to some things that we weren't previously able to sell because they would go to restaurants first. I mean, um, did, can I ask about that? Yeah. Like, did does France 44 supply like bulk alcohol to restaurants? No. So that's not the way that liquor laws in the States work. They, mm-hmm. you, we have a three-tier system. So oh, right. we, we have to buy, this was another project that you and I worked on where we talked about um, the lingering effects of prohibition. Um, mm-hmm. And that this was one of the lingering effects of prohibition is that um, as a retailer, we buy our wine from a distributor uh, which is essentially a like state-mandated middleman. Who Now that all the restaurant activity has dried up, they basically, a lot of the wine that gets, you know, we call it allocated, so it's like there might be limited quantities of it, or it might come from a special producer, and that wine uh, that might have normally gone to a restaurant um, now might be offered to us. Um. Gotcha. So it's not that... It's not that restaurants are giving it back to you. It's that they're giving it back to the distributors and you right. are getting it from the distributors. Exactly. Yeah. That's and they're really not even giving it back to well, them, sure. I don't think. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, exactly. They're just not getting it in the first place. They're just place. not getting it. Right. What does that mean for like, like I know you said you're having different kinds of products that you didn't have before mm-hmm. as a result of that. Like what, what does that look like in practical terms? Like, I mean, more important than the individual product is like the way in which we see the industry like contracting and shifting and the Mm. fact that this actually affects supply lines going back to Europe and to the producers who are having more trouble moving their wine through. So it's like recently we were offered like access to a book of wines that like previously only went to one restaurant and one wine shop in town. And it's like, now we'll get maybe to try a few more wines from Mm. that book. So like, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, Part of my question is how did the supply of wine change as a result of phylloxera after sort of all of these European producers were losing a lot of their product. Mm -hmm. What phylloxera allowed all these vintners to do is kind of go through and be like, okay, like these grapes actually do well here. 
we're going to tear out, you know, because we have to tear out these plants that are currently getting killed by this bug, and we're going to replant the soil with um, a, varieties that we've assessed are doing well here. And so that's like an industry shift, right? Because previously, like wines coming out of one place um, might not have really been known for a grape. It might have been more place-based um, because vinters might have had a hundred years of over lapping crisscrossed grapes that were just kind of growing wild um, out there. That's interesting. I mean, that sounds like what you might say, I don't know, this is a judgment word, but what you might say is like a beneficial result of phylloxera. But I mean, I have to imagine there are also like people who lost their farms and like people who cannot feed themselves because this aphid was destroying all of their crops. Oh, big time. I think that's the interesting parallel between now with COVID and then with phylloxera. Like, these cataclysmic events that seem terrible at the time, I mean, they cause devastation and at the same time, like, they are like, it's like a fire, you know, like it, it cleanses and it kind of like allows things to regrow um, sometimes better than they were. I think the trick right now is making sure that we're actually planting seeds that are like useful for the future and not kind of increasing this trend towards consolidation and um, larger kind of corporate takeovers of things. Totally, and I mean, we are not out of coronavirus no, yet. not I mean, even remotely. <laughs> you know, like, phylloxera still exists in the world, but it is not transforming any industries anymore, right? Because mm, yeah, no, we no. found a way to deal with it. Right. Although, to be fair, it, I think it's, a again, another really interesting parallel is, like, there is no vaccine for phylloxera. Right. The way that they cured it um, was to literally take the roots of American grapevines, which have a natural resistance to it, because phylloxera was endemic to the U.S., and they took French grapes, grapevines, and planted those onto, grafted them onto the American roots. And um, that kept the bugs at bay because the bugs feed on the roots. And totally. grapevines are very hardy, and you can crisscross them like that, and they'll keep producing fruit. It's really um, interesting that, like, changing the root stocks doesn't affect the grapes. super cool. Yeah. yeah. Like, just a really interesting quirk of biology. I mean, mm. there's some people that talk about the differences between wines made from uh, you know, vines that are planted on their own rootstocks versus grafted, but it's kind of a moot point because really, even if there was a difference, we've not, like, we don't have enough um, own planted Vetus vinifera vines um, to know anymore, really, what that difference in taste might have been. Totally. But it, it's not so much that we fixed the problem of the fact that phylloxera destroys Vetus vinifera grapes, more so it's just that we just found the thing that was resistant to it and we attached it onto those grapevines. So it was really like a halfway measure that we've, uh, like the reason we stopped it though was because of like cooperation and like very much like public compliance with the government's directives. Totally. Um, and even then it was a, a messy thing. And still to this day um, in Australia and in parts of Washington, um, phylloxera still exists and there are, um, grapevines, older grapevines that are planted on their own rootstocks that are still susceptible to it. And you still see um, modern day outbreaks of it happening. And you even have quarantine zones in Australia and in these places where um, they've been trying to keep flocks or out where like they are very strict about like what you can bring in out of there, like um, how you, you know, transport grapes there. They don't want you bringing anything over from France. And I think like that's a really interesting thing because it's like uh, we didn't cure it. It's not gone. It's still floating around in the world. It's because, like, public directives, like, were followed 
essentially. That makes me think of the difference between France and Germany, for example. Yeah, definitely. I mean, France, they really just like mucked around for a long time trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And just like now, I mean, no one knew what was happening because they weren't looking for like a bug. They were looking for like what's dying inside of the plant. What kind of disease does the plant have? That's like a you know virus or something. That wasn't what was happening. And so there was um, a lot of disagreement about what even was going on in the first place. And by the time they figured out it was phylloxera, um, there were all different kinds of ideas out there about how to cure it. And um, they tried flooding vineyards, which worked fairly well, but it was very expensive to do. Yeah, um, and I would imagine the phylloxera would be able to just come right back. Yeah, I mean, it, it had to be an annual thing if you were mm. going to give it like a chemical treatment or flood it because like, you can't get rid of a bug entirely when they're microscopic like that. Um, and so in France, this played out over like 20, 30 years of like repeated interventions. Um, eventually, the government got everyone on board with this big replanting project with the rootstocks. Um, although there was much less of a problem and much less devastation uh, just across the border in Germany and Switzerland, they took a very aggressive approach there where anytime uh, phylloxera was found, they would essentially soak the vineyard in chemicals. Uh, in Germany, they would soak it uh, with petroleum and then um, set the vineyard on fire in Germany uh, and put a military cordon around it um, to keep people out, keep farmers away from their land. And they had to leave the land fallow for, I think, at least a year, if not more. Um, and that did get rid of the bug, but like it was massive government intervention. It uh, really did decimate people's livelihoods. But at the same time, like the industry came back much stronger after that, although like just really different, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, much more of France was under vine pre-phylloxera than afterwards. And so like, even though it maybe had positive impacts, like you can't get away from the fact that like there were definitely more people making wine in France before this happened. And I think right now, like it's an open question. Like, will we have as many restaurants as we did before COVID? Who knows? Like, yeah. Yeah. And like, what do individuals and individual economic enterprises have to sacrifice mm -hmm. for sort of the greater good of protecting people? Definitely. Like saving lives. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I, yeah, it's really awful and it's really damaging a lot of people's livelihoods that these restaurants are having to close down. And also, People who are going to restaurants are getting sick with COVID. It's a high contact area. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, I'm thinking about um, something that you and I learned while we were doing our theatrical production of phylloxera with an exclamation point, which is that there were also some like folkloric ways of trying to deal with phylloxera, such as French farmers would bury live toads in the dirt yes. as if it was going to draw out the sickness <laughs> from... And actually, that's making me think of a lot of the kind of misinformation that was spreading about mm. COVID sort of at the very beginning. I remember seeing a lot of that about like, oh, if you take a hot bath or <laughs> like you can tell if you have COVID if you hold your breath for 10 seconds and cough. You can kind of see how someone will look back at this moment the way that we're looking back at phylloxera and we'll be like, oh, yeah. And there were about 10 years where people were really confused about what was going on. Although, frankly, this is happening on a much more accelerated timeline than Phylloxera did. But, yeah, totally. Yeah. And, you know, in a much broader mm -hmm. environment, like COVID is affecting every industry sort of across the planet, whereas Phylloxera only, only did its thing on the wine industry. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about disruptions in industries, another thing that is disrupting a lot of our industries right now is 
our global and national reckonings with white supremacy Mm -hmm. and sort of its role in so many of our industries. Yeah. We even talked about this when we kind of dramatized um, Phylloxera and talked about this major disruption because we were also kind of like the beauty of theater, right? You're bringing your bodies into play. um, And we had bodies in the cast that had like a lot of different gender representation Mm -hmm. to it. Um, And it never became the main focal point of the piece necessarily, but I think a big element of that play was like reckoning with like queerness and with alternative sexuality and also like how that kind of disruption that we're, or what people perceive as a disruption in that way right now. Totally. I mean, I loved, I loved getting to reinterpret a French wine farmer as a non-binary person. (laughs) Like that's very exciting to me. It was super cool. Yeah. Yeah, We've laid some good groundwork here to talk about like these naughty kind of intersections, naughty with a K, um, intersections between wine and identity. And now I think, uh, well, we've got this really awesome article in front of us about decolonizing wine. Totally. Um, now we're kind of facing the next evolution of that conversation. And I keep having it with a lot of colleagues in the industry. And I know the wine industry is a place that is having a big reckoning with colonization right now because it's kind of built into the fabric of the way we talk about wine. So we've always had this conversation in the wine industry about European grapes being better for wine, which is really a distinction of taste. There's no science, you know, there's no objective way to measure what tastes good and what doesn't taste good. And so this decolonizing wine moment and this, you know, really looking at these threads that tie wine and colonialism together, a lot of that comes from the fact that wine's a European product um, made by, made from a European um, species of grape. And um, what I really loved in this article that Miguel de Leon wrote for Punch is that he's getting into um, the way that this plays out, like, in a tasting room. The fact that, like, the fruits that we use to describe wines like gooseberry or blackcurrant, like these are fruits that grow in um, popul- you know, parts of the world settled by white people. It's not so much to say like they're white fruits, you know, but there's no uh, intersectionality or openness to uh, uh, describing wines maybe with fruits that grow in a different part of the world. Well, he talks about how he's been in tastings where people have told him that his tasting note is wrong. Yeah. Because they actually don't know what the flavor he's talking about is, like tamarind or papaya. No, I mean, we've done, um, so a couple of us here have done uh, the WSET Wine and Spirits Education Trust, which is a a test certification you can get, basically. And um, they give you a little green sheet that has a list of flavors on it. They say you can use words that are not on that sheet, but like in practice, it's very difficult to score the point on the test if you don't use the approved words. And it's like, it's really interesting that like we still go along with this idea that we can put our palate into like little boxes and we're letting other people make those boxes for us. There's so many interesting ways to be creative about the way we talk about wine. And I think half our problem right now is that we still let wine education be controlled by pretty much two organizations. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it is a form of gatekeeping it is. to be like, these certain flavors are wrong. They don't apply to wine, especially yeah. when they're rooted in Eurocentricism. Right. And, and, like, and that doesn't even mean that there aren't like white people I know in the industry who come up with incredibly new and interesting ways to talk about it. Like Jill Mott, who runs Bar Brava, describes wines in fascinating ways that rarely reference like 
W set or the Court of Master Sommeliers, like their approved kind of tasting sheets. Like I know people who have talk about wine in fascinating ways. And even I've like tried to describe wine in terms of like shapes or like the way it makes you feel mm-hmm. or like, uh, I mean, so much of it's about storytelling. So it's like tell a story about where you were when you had the wine. But like when it comes down to kind of objective tasting and frankly, um, the kind of evaluation of wines that can make or break like whether or not a wine is considered good and therefore can charge a higher price for it, which pays a farmer, like those kinds of objective tasting notes are still pretty uh, rigorously controlled by um, these kind of gatekeeping organizations. Well, and it makes it a barrier to entry for people who want to enter the industry Mm -hmm. who aren't as familiar with those kinds of tasting palettes. Yeah. Because it's like, if you want to be a sommelier or if you want to pass the W... W set. The W set. You have to like relearn a whole new palette. Mm-hmm. I want to bring us back to phylloxera for a minute mm-hmm. because sort of these pandemics of coronavirus and white supremacy are things that we are in the middle of reckoning with, whereas phylloxera might still be around in some form, but the great French wine blight is over. Correct. Um, so there are things, you know, there are lines we can draw where we can say like, oh, this is how the great French wine blight changed the wine industry going forward. I wonder if you could point to some of those things for us. Well, I mean, I'm not asking you to solve coronavirus <laughs> or white supremacy at this. Right. I mean, I think that that Octavia Butler quote works really well. Of, yes. Thank you for bringing Octavia Butler into this conversation. You're welcome. Um, I think that uh, the quote, you know, God is change and everything you touch, you change. And, you know, you can shape change is like very important to keep in mind right now. Like, they didn't get to the end of it and they were like, great, so happy that this happened. Like, we're going to like make all these changes now. It was more like it happened. It played out the way it played out. And um, the success of the industry or the way the industry adapted uh, was largely based on like people being flexible and really radically changing the way that they lived their lives and grew their crops. And um, the world looks very different now than it did in 1850 for a lot of reasons. And I think that that's the most important thing to keep in mind right now as we go through this COVID moment and our white supremacy reckoning here in the wine industry is like the seeds we plant now and the way we roll with this um, is going to affect the way the industry is after this, or even if there is an industry after this. And so we're making decisions every day in small ways and big ways, but mostly in smaller ways of how we get through this. And just like the, you know, vinters in France, like they, all made different decisions about what to plant there. Um, but now, you know, in most cases, the vines that they chose to plant are, um, you know, exceptionally old, well-regarded uh, grapes that make great wines, right? Yeah, thank you. That was that was really beautiful. Thank I love the lesson of, like, the world is going to change. Mm-hmm. And the world is in a moment of big change right now. And the call is to, like, live in that change. Definitely. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Yeah. uh, At the end of every episode, I like to ask all of our guests the same question. Okay. What's the last great drink you had? Last great drink I had was probably um, the cocktail I made for myself last night. Uh, It's called a bamboo. uh, And it's just this really great kind of low alcohol aperitif, great in summer. Um, It's half dry sherry, fino works, or uh, manzanilla. Um, and half uh, dry vermouth, and then a little bit of orange bitters, just a drop of Angostura bitters to give it some color and a little spice note, but it's just dry, cold, uh, 
really lovely in summer. A little twist of lemon on top and an olive, and it's like a martini without uh, without all the gin. Do you have it over ice? No, I, I, I stirred it with ice, then I strained it. Yeah. Gorgeous. It was delish. It sounds really good. It's really good. The France 44 cast is a production of France 44 Wine and Spirits in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The show is produced and mixed by Emmett Cowler. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas about the show, we would love to hear them. Send us an email at podcast at france44.com. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, drink well.